I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. We have finally arrived to the final chapter of Hebrews, and this morning we will hear God's Word from Hebrews 13, verses 1 through 4. But before we do, let us once again ask for our God's help as we prepare to hear His Word. Father, you have said that as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, that in this way your word will go forth from your mouth and it shall not return to you empty, but it shall accomplish that which you have purposed it for and shall succeed in the thing for which you have sent it. We ask that you would keep that promise now, that as I preach your word, it would truly be your word, not mine, that goes forth. And by the applying work of your spirit, that it would do a good work within us, working by your grace for our salvation and not our heart. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord to you from Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 4. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. This is the holy, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word of God. Some of you are very detail-oriented people, and you love few things more than a thorough list or a good spreadsheet. I just so happened to marry one of those list lovers and spreadsheet savers. I don't think my wife has ever lived a day without a list. And some of her lists are so long that I get dizzy just looking at them. And since my wife takes very seriously God's command to love your neighbor as yourself, I often wake up each morning with texts and emails waiting for me to grace me with a list of things she would like me to accomplish that day. And when I walk downstairs, I usually find lists waiting for what she wants my children to accomplish that day. I rarely find my wife because she's already off accomplishing her own list. And while I am not as excited about lists as my wife, I will admit that there is something clarifying, perhaps even comforting, about a list. Because it is challenging when you feel like every morning just vague ambiguity is waiting for you. 
even though we don't like people telling us what to do, we do at some level want to know at the end of each day, I, I did what I was supposed to do. I lived this day well. I, I accomplished what I needed to accomplish. So in some ways, it is easier to have a clear list of tasks each day telling you not only what to do, but how to do it. And perhaps this is one of the reasons we are tempted at times to return to life under the law with its very detailed list of how to obey God, how to offer acceptable worship to him, what pleasing sacrifices are in his eyes. And so in some ways, the law can seem simpler than the gospel because the law says, do this and live. While the gospel says, you are free from slavery, so go live by faith and worship God. And while that is excellent news, we're not always sure how to live in that freedom or what it looks like to live by faith and worship God. Some of us just want a list. And perhaps some of you felt that way as we came to the end of chapter 12 last week. For in the second half of chapter 12, the author reminded us that we have not come to Mount Sinai signifying life and worship under the old covenant with the law of Moses, but we have come to Mount Zion signifying life and worship under the new covenant under the gospel of Jesus. And this again is good news because the old covenant life was marked by dreadful distance from God. While the new covenant life under the gospel is marked by joyful access to God. And yet, when the author concludes in verse 28, let us offer to God acceptable worship, you may have wondered, well, what is now acceptable worship to God? Now, I argued last week that acceptable worship here is, it, it includes corporate worship, but it's more expansive, including the entire Christian life that is lived in worship of and service to God. An acceptable worship is worship in Christ, through faith in Christ and obedience to Christ. But that still doesn't tell us exactly what that kind of life looks like. And that's why the letter to the Hebrews doesn't end with chapter 12. But we have chapter 13 in, in addition. See, there are many scholars who think chapter 13, it doesn't seem to really fit. It just kind of seems like random commands and they can't understand why it's here. Well, I would argue it, it does fit perfectly with the rest of the letter. And it is here to help you understand what God sees as acceptable worship, as it says in chapter 12, verse 28, and what pleasing sacrifices are to God, as the author again speaks of in chapter 13, verses 15 and 16. So that's what's holding all of these commands together in chapter 13, which may seem a bit random at times. Chapter 13 is answering, what is it, a life of acceptable worship under the new covenant? And it's not an exhaustive 
list, but it gives us general principles to follow. In the first six verses, you're given three marks of what a sacrificial life of acceptable worship looks like. This morning, we're just going to look at the first four verses, which has the first two marks of this kind of love, of life, which is number one is brotherly love, and number two, which is sexual purity. So the first mark of a sacrificial life of acceptable worship is brotherly love. You see this in verse one, let brotherly love continue. And if you've been with me through this series, it shouldn't surprise you that the commands in chapter 13, like all of the commands and warnings in Hebrews, are coming in the context of community. This is how Christians live together in the church. Because Christians are not saved by themselves, and they are not saved unto themselves. Individual salvation falls within corporate salvation. Jesus was given a people, an entire flock to save. So Christ's body, his bride for whom he gave his life, is the universal church of which we are members. This is what I mean when I say we're not saved by ourselves, but neither are we saved unto ourselves, meaning salvation, which brings us to God, also brings us into the church. We are saved as a body into a body. And yet the central idea of the church in Scripture, of all the descriptions that you receive of the church, it's not centrally just a gathered people, a temple, a bride, or a body even though those are all true descriptions of the church. The central idea in Scripture is that the church is God's family. The author stressed this back in chapter 2, when he encouraged us that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers, and that Jesus came to identify with God's children. And so here, the author uses a word describing relationships and affection within the church that is a familial word. The word is Philadelphia, meaning brotherly love. So we see that the true city of brotherly love is the city of God. Therefore, a sacrificial life of acceptable worship and service to God necessarily includes brotherly love. We rightly often understand that worship devoid of love for God is, is unacceptable to God. Worship is a matter of the heart. But I'm not sure we always recognize that worship devoid of love for one another is equally unacceptable in God's eyes. For the whole law is not merely summed up with love God. It also includes love your neighbor. I once heard one of my favorite preachers, pastors, theologians, Sinclair Ferguson, remark that if someone were to ask him what his goal in laboring and pastoring in the church is, he, he said it, 
His goal is, is that people would come to the conscious realization that the most important thing about them as a church is not their programs, it's not their pastors, it's not their property, it's their reality as God's family. You cannot understand the church if you do not understand the church as a family. You cannot understand its worship and its preaching and its service apart from this reality. Ongoing brotherly love is essential. So Jesus said to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my, my disciples, if you love, if you have love for one another. This brotherly love, therefore, includes true affection for one another. It includes sacrificial service for one another. It means we actually have to live and worship together. It means mutual support and sharing. It means you actually know the other person, what their needs are, and are ready to meet them. So two examples of this brotherly love that the author gives us are hospitality and identification with the mistreated and marginalized. You see in verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now, what is hospitality? Well, the word essentially means love of the stranger. Today, we most often associate it with having people over for a meal. And while that is certainly an expression of hospitality, hospitality is more than that. Hospitality is a kind of radical identification with others. It is a welcoming of others as part of your family, living as if their needs are your needs. And this is to begin in the household of faith. Some think strangers here refers to those outside the church. But while hospitality can extend and ought to extend to unbelievers, it actually is to begin in the church. This command to hospitality is under the umbrella of brotherly love. So hospitality follows the same principle Paul lays out in Galatians 6 when he says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Throughout the New Testament, the commands to hospitality come within the context of loving and serving God's people. So you see here, it's within the context of brotherly love. The same is true in 1 Peter 4, when Peter writes, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. So hospitality is part of this one anothering within the church. The same is also true as Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, where he says, contribute to the needs of the saints seeking to show hospitality. 
So hospitality is one of the ways that we contribute to the needs of the saints, of God's people. And Paul gives an example of this later in Romans 16, where he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sencrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. See, in the, the Roman world, travel had now become safer and more common than it ever had before. And so even Christians are traveling all over from one city to another. They are doing this as they are spreading the gospel. And Jesus had told his disciples, to whom you are going to preach the gospel, they are to receive you and provide for you. But travel for Christians also became necessary because they were persecuted at various times, and sometimes they were kicked out of their city. And so Paul is repeatedly commanding as brothers and sisters who may be strangers, who you don't know at all, when, when they come to your city, you welcome them as your family, and you provide whatever they need with no expectation of receiving anything in return. And yet the author of Hebrews encourages us that when we extend hospitality in this way, we actually are receiving a blessing far greater than anything we are giving. I believe this is the meaning behind his acknowledgement, his reasoning that sometimes we may be entertaining angels unawares. Now, he, he could be referring to multiple Old Testament stories. We'll hear about one of them this evening when I preach on Judges 13 and Manoah's wife and Manoah receive an angel of the Lord, but they just think he's a man of God. But the author's probably thinking specifically of Genesis 18 when Abraham receives three men who turns out to be the Lord and two angels. And this is when the Lord says that Sarah in a year's time is going to have a son beginning to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. So the author's point in Hebrews 13 is not extend hospitality just on the off chance that it may be an angel. Don't think he thinks it's going to be an angel most of the time. But he uses this example to say extend hospitality because as you live faithfully within the covenant of grace, you will receive the covenant promises and blessings. Hospitality, though, is an expression of brotherly love because it is treating each other as part of the same family. This, again, demonstrates how closely Christians are to identify with and serve one another. Leandra and I were talking this morning, and I was saying, you know, of all the things within American evangelicalism, which, which has its strengths and its weaknesses, I think one of the weakest points of American Christians is we just don't understand the doctrine of the church. We really think that church is just a once a week event. It's not. It is a community and lifestyle of loving worship and service. And you are not obeying God's commands to brotherly love and hospitality if you don't actually live within the covenant community, if you don't actually know one another and serve one another as best you can. For brotherly love 
is self-sacrificing love. Because it's just living out Christ's brotherly love for us. And let me also just note that if you have needs, you need to let others in the church know about those needs. A lot of times we're, we're suffering in various ways and nobody knows because we don't tell anyone. And I know we get embarrassed at times. Asking for help pricks our, our pride. More often than not, I hear people say, well, I, I don't want to burden anybody. Well, guess what? Paul specifically says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. It's what the church is for. One of the things the church is for. This radical identification with one another, though, is not just limited to those reputable Christians, those Christians we are happy to be identified with. There are other Christians that we just kind of view as, as crazy uncles, and we're just like, well, yeah, I guess by blood I'm technically related, but we're really nothing alike. But Paul, but the author of Hebrews says that we are to identify and serve even those who are mistreated and marginalized, who don't have a strong reputation. He says, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. Now, we learned in, in chapter 10 that the Hebrew Christians actually did this very well, which is why the author is simply saying here, let brotherly love continue. Keep doing this. But we need to take this to heart as we live in a culture that continues to shift from Christianity being viewed in a positive light to a neutral light to now increasingly in a negative light. It is no longer a good thing when you tell somebody, I'm a Christian. More often than not, that's not going to make them think more highly of you. That will be a negative in their book. At various times in ancient Rome, Jews and Christians were severely persecuted, plundered, and put to death. But one of the factors that actually contributed to the spread of Christianity throughout the Roman Empire was the radical way that Christians loved and served one another, even when it cost them everything. Instead of instilling fear in Christians and leading them to abandon their faith, which was the aim of persecution, it actually increased brotherly love and identification with God and his people. And you can read about how Christians loved one another and served one another in those days from Christian writers of the time like Justin Martyr. But it's even more striking when you read about this from those in the Roman Empire who were not sympathetic at all to Christians, and yet they were just dumbfounded by how Christians loved one another. One example is found in the writings of a man named Lucian who writes about a, a second century instance when a, a man named Peregrinus Proteus was imprisoned for his faith in Palestine. But instead of distancing themselves from Proteus, the other Christians at first did everything they could to secure his release, but they wouldn't release him. So their next step was bribing the guards. Now, not bribing the guards to get Proteus out of prison. They bribed the guards so that they could go into the prison with Proteus. And again, 
Imprisonment in those days, not nearly as nice as imprisonment here in the United States, which is still not nice. But they would go and take turns sleeping with Proteus in his cell every night so he wasn't alone. They would bring him food every day. They would come and just read the scriptures to him. In fact, Christians even outside of Palestine started pooling mon money so that they, they could send people to Palestine to encourage Proteus. And Lucian could not understand this. How seriously do we take the commands to let brotherly love continue, to pursue hospitality, and to identify in action not just in spirit, with those who are mistreated and marginalized. How can we do this better as a church? I think we all need to take time to reflect and ask ourselves these questions. For a sacrificial life of acceptable worship is marked by that kind of brotherly love. But number two, we see that it is also marked by sexual purity. Verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Now that verse may seem a little bit random, following on the, the heels to, to let brotherly love continue, but it's not. Because chapter 13 is primarily about how we relate to one another as a church and in this way offer acceptable worship. And yes, the primary way that we relate to one another in the church is as a family, as brothers and sisters in Christ. But that might lead some to ask, well, does that mean all other kinds of relationships now are null and void? And some may think so based on texts like Mark 4 in which Jesus appears to disparage his biological family or Galatians 3 when Paul says there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. But other passages like Hebrews 13.4 corrects this misunderstanding. For even though our identity in Christ overrules all other identities, it doesn't eliminate those distinctions and distinctives. So Christians still have distinctions and distinctive relationships within the church, including biological families and marriages. This verse is also important at this juncture because God did make us as sexual beings, and so that kind of purity is absolutely essential for acceptable worship. You see in the Old Covenant law, God really cared about sexual purity. He doesn't care about it less now in the New Covenant. Even though in first century Christianity, it wasn't always clear, well, how do we remain pure? Some went so far to say, well, then we just have no physical contact with one another. We teach that marriage and what happens in marriage, those are bad things because the spiritual is holy, the physical is unholy. But again, the author of Hebrews corrects this, and he says, no, marriage is still good. It's still necessary. 
And it is the one and only context where that kind of physical intimacy, it's not just allowable, it's good. So we see that marriage is still good and necessary. It's not a necessary evil and last-ditch lifeline for those who cannot control themselves. Instead, the author says, everyone needs to hold marriage in honor. Now, it's true, earthly marriage is temporary. This is not an eternal reality. Its purpose is primarily to point to the relationship between Christ and the church, as Paul makes clear in Ephesians 5. And that purpose will be fulfilled when Christ returns and we celebrate the marriage and wedding feast of the Lamb. But that hasn't happened yet. So marriage is still to be a a visible proclamation of the gospel and the relationship between Christ and the church. So it is a great good. Now that doesn't mean everyone is called to be married and that you are less human, less fulfilled, and less godly if you're not married. The single believer can have as much pleasure and satisfaction in Christ as the married believer. Jesus was never married. I dare any of you to tell me he was unfulfilled in life. Paul even says, I wish that all were as I myself am, speaking about his singleness. But he concludes... Each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. And so I would simply note there that Paul considers singleness and marriage within the context of good gifts from God. They're just different good gifts from God. So we see that though everyone is not called to be married, Everyone, whether married or single, is to uphold marriage as a good and worthy pursuit. Everyone is to promote and protect the sanctity of marriage. And likewise, everyone is to protect the marriage bed, which is clearly referring to physical intimacy within marriage. And of course, this responsibility is first on those who are actually married. It's just Rearticulating the commandment not to commit adultery. Now, marital faithfulness goes beyond physical faithfulness, but the author's specific concern here is for sexual fidelity. For he says God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous, which covers all kinds of sexual sin. Sexually immoral refers to anything outside of marriage. Adultery refers to any kind of physical intimacy in this way with someone who is not your spouse. And so the implication is clear. The only context in which sexual pleasure is good and blessed by God is within the context of marriage. And so any kind of attempts at finding this gratification by yourself or by someone who is not your spouse is sin. And again, God still cares about 
purity. So here are some exhortations for you in, in light of this reality. To those of you who are single, maybe you don't have relationship with a man or woman, or you're dating or engaged, not yet married. What I want to remind you of is that your fight for purity is not a fight of God is trying to limit the amount of pleasure you can experience in life. It is actually God protecting you from taking the good that he has given you and actually diminishing its goodness and pleasure. So your fight for purity is a fight for the greatest pleasure that God wants to give you, not a fight against pleasure that God is denying you. Because if God designed something for your good, its maximum good is only found in God's design. So yes, right now, there is a kind of earthly pleasure that is forbidden to you. But if you were to pursue it outside of God's design, it would be fleeting and it would ultimately be destructive. You would not be gaining pleasure. Over time, you would be robbing yourself of the pleasure of communion with God. And I would also simply say to you, you don't know if and when you are going to be married. And let me tell you, if that day comes, you will never regret purity beforehand. I've never met a Christian husband or wife who says, you know what I wish now that I'm married? I wish I had been more promiscuous beforehand. It's just not the case. You will thank God for everything that he held you back from. For God, I want to be clear, can and will forgive and cleanse and sanctify you even from sexual sin. It is not unforgivable if you have fallen into sin. That is not the end of your life or of happiness in marriage. But I do want to warn you that everything you do before marriage, you bring into marriage. And there will be consequences. Sin always has consequences. So as you fight for purity, remember that you are not fighting against your pleasure. You are fighting to protect your pleasure in Christ. My last word to you who are single is simply to say that you should also every day be thinking, speaking, dressing, acting in a way that is promoting marital faithfulness. Your desire should always be for husbands and wives to desire each other. Now, ultimately, we are all responsible for our own sin. We don't get to blame somebody else. But Hebrews has taught us to work, to guard one another from sin and promote each other's holiness. Again, this is the work of the entire community. Now, to those of you who are married. I have two exhortations to help you uphold marriage and fight that your marriage bed would be undefiled. My first exhortation is simply never cease pursuing your spouse emotionally, spiritually, intellectually, and yes, physically. Your wedding day 
was not the day that you arrived and your quest was completed and now you just coast. Your wedding day was day one of a lifelong pursuit of loving your spouse and pursuing his or her joy in Jesus. So you every day are working to woo your spouse, love your spouse, serve your spouse, sacrifice for your spouse, and delight in your spouse. And of course, the chief way you do this is by helping them grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. But there are many ways that God has given us to delight in Christ, including physical intimacy and marriage. The goal, though, is that spouses are pursuing the good and pleasure of one another, not just selfishly seeking their own. So husbands, I say to you in particular, remember that you are to image Christ in marriage, and Christ sacrificially gave himself for his bride. And he did that for her greatest pleasure. Christ's love is never a selfish, self-seeking love. His leadership is always for her good, her delight, her flourishing. So husbands, delight in your wife alone. Serve her. Think well of her. Speak well of her. And always put her needs above your own. I pray that the wives in this congregation would say, I... I don't always agree with my husband. Sometimes he makes really dumb decisions. But I I can say that even when he's being a little bit dumb, he's trying to honor Christ and he's trying to serve me. Sometimes he doesn't know how to do that very well, but I guess it's the thought that counts, though. Let's try to do better than a good thought. No matter what? Seek husbands to live marked by gentle, tender, humble care for your wife, not entitled, harsh, self-seeking domination. There are enemies on every side of this. Radical feminism perverts this. Abusive patriarchy perverts this. We've seen even in the last decades the pitfalls of so-called purity culture. But let me tell you, the problem has never been that we cared too much about purity. The problem has never been God's ideal and commands. The problem has been we keep messing it up. So don't throw out God's order and commands because you've seen people get it wrong. Seek by God's grace to get it right. And wives, remember that the church is to image to the world, is to image how the church delights in Christ. And so I will simply ask you, if people were to look at the way you you think about your husband, speak about your husband, treat your husband, would they think the church really delights in Christ? Or would they think, You know, I'm not sure the church really wants anything to do with Christ. Again, I know that your husbands are not Jesus. But never underestimate the transformative power of a loving, faithful wife. So are you pursuing delight in your husband? I hope you are. 
my final exhortation to husbands and wives is simply as you are pursuing your spouse, because we often think of purity as what we're, what we're guarding against, which ultimately it's actually, we're, what are we pursuing? Where are we seeking our pleasure? But at the same time, we must be watchful and guard against any potential breaches in the fortress of our marriages. Now, the obvious hole in the wall is, is lust, and we all need to certainly fight against lust, learning to take every thought captive for Christ. But there are other potential pitfalls. Impure thoughts are not the only thoughts that threaten purity. Here's just one example. Self-pity. You begin to think to yourself, my spouse doesn't look at me the way I want doesn't appreciate me the way I want, doesn't care about me the way I want. And then all of a sudden you, you start to notice someone else who does look at you the way you want. Self-pity can lead to adultery as much as lust can lead to adultery. So learn your own particular vulnerabilities better so that you can be more on guard against them. For God delights in marriage and sexual purity and so should we. These were designed for his glory and for our good, but they only work that way when we follow his design. When we forsake his wise boundaries, we are not venturing into superior delight. We are venturing into sure destruction. So know that brotherly love and sexual purity are true marks of acceptable worship. They are pleasing sacrifices to the Lord, but always keep them within the context of the new covenant. For we are to only pursue brotherly love as those who have been perfectly loved by our, our elder brother, Jesus Christ. And we are to offer sacrifices of sexual purity as those who have already been perfectly purified by the perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ. So again, if you've heard these exhortations and seen your sin, again, know that is sin that Christ's blood washes clean. We are loving as those who are are loved. We are pursuing purity as those who are purified. In other words, the law of Christ under the new covenant is not so much a new list as it is a renewed life. Acceptable worship is not a life lived in the pursuit of acceptance. It is a life lived as one accepted. You've already received the unshakable kingdom. So pleasing sacrifices are not sacrifices for your pardon. They are sacrifices of praise because you have been pardoned. Jesus offered the only sacrifice you will ever need for your sin, which means you are only required to offer sacrifices of praise. So let brotherly love continue because Jesus has loved you as his brother. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers because when you were still a stranger, alienated from God, Jesus identified with you and he took your needs as his needs with him to the cross. Remember those in prison as in prison with them because Jesus entered into the prison of your sin and he set you free. 
Remember those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body, because Jesus took on a body like yours and was mistreated for your sake. And let marriage be held in honor by all, because marriage still shows you and the world the loving intimacy that Christ is to have with his one and only bride. And let the marriage bed be kept undefiled, because Jesus is your one and only husband, and you are his one and only bride. And Jesus gave himself to make his bride pure, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, these are, apart from your grace and spirit, impossible commands for us to obey. But Lord, I thank you that we do have your grace in Jesus Christ, and we have your Holy Spirit. We have been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I pray that in light of that, we would go forth and live lives of acceptable worship, offering pleasing sacrifices of praise to you. Teach us better how to love one another. Teach us better how to uphold and protect marriage. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.